This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Hey, good morning, everybody. It is Sunday morning, and uh, we are streaming to you uh, from New Life in Petaluma, California. So all of you in the Petaluma area, hey, very good morning to you. Uh, For those of you in the other parts of the United States and and around the world, I I just want to say good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. Uh, We're so glad that you have tuned in and uh, that you're following along with us uh, during this season and hopefully even beyond this season. So I have a question for you. Does life seem a little weird? Well, if it seems a little weird, that's because it is weird. This is the first pandemic we've had in uh, about a hundred years. It's the first one in the modern era. And somebody said something to me the other day that I thought encapsulated that uh, in a pretty good way. It says, you know, this, they said to me, this is a weird year. February had 29 days, March had 31, and April had 100. And you know, I think that says it, that, 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 those are my sentiments pretty much exactly. And so I want to talk for just a minute about what our governor said recently, because it really affects who we are as a church and what we get to do, Uh, because he indicated that it's going to be several months, maybe five, six, seven months before there's any hope of us meeting together on our campus in any form of a large group setting. And I know that can be discouraging for all of us. But I want to say this, your leaders are working behind the scenes and we are working on some new things because our goal is not just that we could survive during this time. We actually want to thrive during this time. So look for more things coming down the pike from us that will help us as a church thrive during this time. And one of the things that that we put together on purpose is this teaching series called Rise Above. Uh, because we want to be able to rise above all, all the pressure and everything that comes uh, with this season of sheltering in place. And um, so this whole series is based on the life of a guy whose life was captured in the Bible. His name is Joseph. And this is not Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, but this is Joseph the guy who had the technicolored coat that Hollywood made a movie about. It's that Joseph. And uh, today's teaching uh, is very well encapsulated in the word picture of photography. The name of our teaching is Dark Rooms. And so I've got a camera around my neck on purpose because I want us to go back to sort of the old school days when cameras like this Uh, had real film in them. And once you had exposed all the pictures on the film, you rewound the film and then you took it to a place that would develop it and they would uh, take the film out of the canister uh, and then they would transfer the images onto photograph paper. And then they took the photograph paper into a place called the darkroom. And in the darkroom, it is what it said. It was very dark. And there were special chemicals there called developers. 
and they would take the photo paper and they'd, and they'd leave it in the developer for a specified amount of time. And then they would take it out of the developer and stop that, that chemical process, hang it up and let it dry. And, um, and that's how your pictures got developed. Now, one of the things that we learned from that old school photography is a wonderful principle that we're gonna teach today. And that is this, what develops in the dark becomes beautiful in the light. That one principle, what develops in the dark becomes beautiful in the light. Now, one of my, one of my hobbies is photography. And I brought along some things that I've sort of developed in my own dark room of photography. And the first one is this. It's, it's a beautiful waterfall. It's called Bridalvale Falls. It's just outside of Portland, Oregon. And I just happened to be there at the time when the light was just right to capture it. And the second picture is a picture just outside of Honolulu at the, at the it's a beachscape at the Outrigger Canoe Club, um, just outside of Honolulu. And again, the light was just right. The colors were brilliant. The third is taken at, at uh, Disney World down in Florida. There's a butterfly sanctuary. And I just happened to catch these two butterflies uh, resting on a leaf. And my goodness, the, the, the amazing colors that God puts all through nature are so well exhibited there. And then the last photograph is one of my favorites. It simply is a sunrise coming through a tree uh, on a friend's property just outside of Petaluma. Now, all those things illustrate our one principle. It's what develops in the dark that actually becomes beautiful in the light. And that was certainly true in Joseph's life. So let's take a minute to peruse his story. Joseph is born the youngest of 11 brothers, and he's got uh, a sister or two as siblings. Uh, and when he's in his early teens, maybe 13, 14, he has a couple of dreams. And um, so Joseph, unfortunately, as a young teenager, decides to be that guy, that guy who sat his family down and said, hey, what? Listen to this. I had these dreams and... I'm going to be the chief in our family eventually. Eventually, all of you are going to bow down to me and you're going to take your orders from me. Well, that didn't sit well with his family. And his older brothers decided that guy was not, not actually welcome in the family anymore. And when they had the opportunity, they sold Joseph to a slave trader. And, they, and the slave trader put him in shackles and put him on a wagon and carted him hundreds of miles down to a country called Egypt, which happened to be the superpower of the world at the time. And the reigning emperor was called Pharaoh. That was their term for emperor. And the highest bidder for Joseph turned out to be the captain of Pharaoh's personal bodyguards. So in a way, Joseph was sold into slavery into sort of semi-royalty. It was a beautiful home. It was a beautiful estate, but, but Joseph was still a slave and he still started at the bottom and he probably started out planting, uh, who knows, planting seeds in the hot sun and, and hoeing and raking and shoveling and doing the things 
uh, that, uh, you know, slaves on the bottom of the totem pole do. Uh, but there was something that was developing in Joseph during this dark time of his life. And Joseph turned a corner and decided instead of being bitter and angry, that he would make something of himself. And so he began to develop new skills and to work diligently and to be 100% reliable and honest. And it wasn't long until the guy who bought him, his name was Potiphar, figured out that Joseph was actually more brilliant than he was. So he decided that he would start putting thing, uh, things under Joseph's control. And I don't know the order it took, but I do know this. Eventually, Joseph was in charge of all the crews that planted. And then Joseph was put in charge of all the crews that watered and fertilized. And he was put in charge of all the crews that harvested. And he was put in charge of all the people who cleaned the house. And he was put in charge of all the people who did maintenance and upkeep. And he was put in charge of all the people who ran the kitchen and cooked for the entire household. And he was put in charge of all the people who kept the books. And he was put in charge of the people who made the investments. And eventually, Joseph was put in charge of everything in Potiphar's house. It's all well and good. Joseph thinks this is awesome. Until one day, Mrs. Potiphar decides that Joseph is a handsome hunk. And the Bible says that he was well built and he was really good looking. And so as Pastor Joel said last week, she fell in lust with him. And one day when he was in the house, she grabbed him and she said, come lie with me. And, and he said, and he pushed her away and he said, no, I can't do that. I can't do that and sin against you and defile you. I can't do that and sin against Potiphar. I can't do that and sin against God. And as he turned to run, she grabbed his coat and he left it and fled. And when Potiphar got home, uh, she trumped up this charge that Joseph had tried to molest and rape her. And Joseph was arrested, taken to trial, and he was convicted of attempted rape. And he was sentenced to time in prison. And it was there in prison, an even darker room, that Joseph had a choice. Would he be bitter and angry? Or would he let God develop something in him? And while he was there, there are three other characters that come into his life. The warden. And to make a long story short, the warden did with Joseph exactly what Potiphar did. He started putting him in charge of the operation of the prison. And pretty soon, Joseph was running the whole prison and the warden was just getting paid for it. Two other guys come into Joseph's life. One is the pastry chef of, of Pharaoh, and the other is the sommelier of Pharaoh as well. And they come into Joseph's life because evidently there was an event that went bad in the royal room, and I don't know what it was. It could be that the pastry chef, chef served a bacon scone to a vegetarian dignitary. It could be that that Pharaoh ordered Merlot and got served Chardonnay. I don't know what the deal was, but I know that both of them messed up and the situation got awkward and Pharaoh got mad and he threw them in prison until he could decide what to do with them. And it was in prison that they had a dream, each one of them. And uh, God spoke to Joseph and said, hey, your two buddies that just came to prison and had dreams, 
Here's the interpretation. And so Joseph gave the interpretation of the dream to each of those guys. And within three days, both of those dreams came true exactly as Joseph said they would. And the last thing that Joseph said to the sommelier as he was leaving prison is, please remember me to Pharaoh because I'm unjustly here. But Genesis chapter 40 ends and, and it's really sad. It says, but that guy forgot Joseph and he forgot him for two straight years. Friends, that's a dark room. Joseph has been there already multiple years. But things like that don't just happen to Joseph. They happen to all of us. And so I want you to watch a video. It's, it's, it's about the life of J.K. Rowling. And um, boy, she had some dark times in her life. And I know that some Christians have a problem with, with all the Harry Potter books and the wizardry and all that. And I'm not going to speak to that right now. But for a moment, if you could set aside all of that stuff, and just think about J.K. Rowling as a human being. There's something she learned in the dark times of her life that I think could be incredibly powerful for us. So let's take a look at that video right now. While on a train at age 25, an idea struck J.K. Rowling like a bolt of lightning. Boy doesn't know he's a wizard goes to wizard school. Not having a pen on her at the time, Rowling sat on the train as the ideas came flooding in. That night she began writing her first book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. She didn't know it at the time, but years later those very words would spark the imagination of millions of children worldwide. Shortly after she began writing, however, her mother passed away. Regrettably, Rowling had never shared with her mother the wonders of Harry Potter. The years after her mother's passing were hard for Rowling. As a struggling writer, she married and had her first child. However, the marriage was short-lived. Reflecting on this period, Rowling says, I had failed on an epic scale. In her own words, this was when she entered the darkest period of her life and questioned whether she would get through it. Amidst the darkness, Rowling found comfort in her writing and went on to complete the Harry Potter series. These very years, the ones that tested her resolve and inner strength formed much of her writing and ultimately how the series would unfold. Many of the characters and creatures that make up the wizarding world arose from this dark period of her life. She would later reflect, the books wouldn't be what they are if she hadn't have died. I mean, her death is virtually on every other page of the Harry Potter books. Harry Potter has since become the best-selling book series in history. The books have sold over 400 million copies and the movie series has grossed $5.3 billion in total. Rowling is now credited with doing more for childhood literacy than any other person in history. She now views her dark period as providing the very direction she needed to focus on the only work that mattered to her, being a mother and telling great stories. And so rock bottom became the solid foundation upon which I rebuilt my life. Rowling acknowledges. In life, it is not what happens to us that matters, but rather how we choose to interpret what happens and therefore who we become as a result. You know you've found the hidden wisdom in your deepest scar when you view it as your greatest gift. Isn't that amazing? So here is what J.K. Rowling learned 
during that time, it's, it's so clear what happens to us is not nearly as important as how we interpret what happens to us. It's the story that we write. And so as we approach the question of how can we or how should we handle these dark times, in, this, in, in that story that you just saw, apparently James, who was the brother of Jesus, learned that same lesson two millennia before J.K. Rowling because <clears throat> here's what James writes to us and I want to read it to you straight, straight from the Bible. James says, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, that's the dark rooms, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its two true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it. Let the dark room time do its work so you become mature. And look at this next word, well developed. You see, it's what develops in the dark rooms that makes us beautiful in the light. And then he says, you will not be deficient in any way. So what can we learn from that? Well, here's the interesting question. How or what determines how we interpret what happens to us? What is it that is that developing solution that determines whether the narrative we write is good or bad, becomes productive in our lives or becomes destructive? Well, I want you to take a look at this principle because the wrong developer starts with the word why. And this is the question that we often ask. Why has this happened to me? There are people way worse than me that have never had this happen to them. What have I done to deserve this? Why has this happened to me? And friends, that's actually the wrong developer because if you follow that out, it can lead only to bad places. Let's just assume for a minute that what has happened to us is great. Well, when we start asking, why has this happened to me? Typically, it leads to two places. <clears throat> Number one is, I deserve it. Hmm. I, I, I might actually just be better than other people because I was born into this situation inherited this situation, um, and that's a sense of entitlement. Or if we were born poor and we became rich through hard work and industry, we can write the narrative because I've earned it. I actually deserve this. Well, neither one of those bring out the best in us. <clears throat> Let's assume for a minute <clears throat> that what happens to us isn't good. So then we get into this, why has this happened to me? And it usually leads to one of two conclusions. Number one, there's something wrong with me. There was something wrong with me when I was born. So evidently God knows I deserve this. And it's my punishment for being defective. Or if we're not willing to settle for that answer, 
then there's something wrong with God because I don't deserve this. And yet somehow God has allowed this to come in my life. And friends, I want to say that the more we get hung up on the why, the chances are that our conclusions will actually not help us at all. And oftentimes it's way more complicated than anything we think. But there is a better developer. There is a right developer in our lives. And that's this. When we ask ourselves, what do I know and believe? In these dark times, in this dark room situation, what do I know and believe that would make a difference in my life? Because when we focus on the why, we often get what I call the spinning wheel of unfairness. It never resolves. It just leaves us in this unfair condition. So what do I know and believe? Let's see how a guy from scripture who actually was a key person in the Bible, his name was Paul. Let's see what he wrote from his own dark room, his own prison cell. This is what he wrote. Paul said, and I want to read it to you. Paul said, I have no regrets. I couldn't be more sure of my ground. The one I've trusted in can take care of what I've entrusted to him right to the end. Wow. He said, this is what I know. God is good. I know that. And I've trusted him. And I know that he's going to take care of me in spite of the fact that I'm writing to you from prison. And why could Paul be so sure that he could believe in that? Because earlier in his life, he wrote this before he was ever put in prison. He wrote this. He said, we can be sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. So Paul said, look, I'm convinced that God is good, that God is for me. And there's no dark room in the world that can tell me any different because as long as I'm in this dark room, I'm going to trust and believe that God is good and God is for me. And then he said, It gets even better than that because in these dark rooms, I know that even this, God is working into something good in my life. And friends, I would tell you that no matter how hard you're struggling during this time, and maybe what you're struggling with has nothing to do with COVID. Maybe what you're struggling with has everything to do with your marriage or some other health thing, or a problem you're having with a child, or the loss of a child, or the loss of a mate, uh, or the loss of your job. It could be anything. Paul would say to you, in this dark room of your life, know this for sure, God is good. He's for you. And that God is at work even in this detail to bring something good out of your life. That truth is so well encapsulated in a Lauren Daigle song. If we go back to the story of Joseph, here's an interesting question. Is this story going to end well for Joseph? As of right now, he's in prison 
and he's been there for a number of years and he's forgotten. Will the story end well? Well, Joseph doesn't know that for sure, but he does know that God is good and that God's at work in his life. And he knows that his job is to trust in God. And that message is captured so well in this Lauren Daigle song that is sung for us by Sarah Guilford, one of our uh, band leaders and a great singer. Listen as she carries these lyrics into our hearts. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.